You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Post Live Election Daily, hosted by national political reporter Robert Costa, is a daily snapshot of the state of the 2020 election. Each day, Costa and other Washington Post reporters will give you the headlines, the inside track on key congressional races, and a behind-the-scenes assessment on the presidential race in top battleground states. And we'll hear from key newsmakers and top political players. In this episode, you'll hear from Eric Holder, former Attorney General of the United States and former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. Good afternoon. I'm Bob Costa, national political reporter at The Washington Post. Welcome back to Post Live's Election Daily Show. We launched this show just yesterday, so you can have up-to-the-minute news on election news every day at 1 p.m. Eastern. Today, I'll be joined by former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, who's a strong supporter of President Trump. And in just a minute, I'll be joined by former Attorney General Eric Holder, who has been working on redistricting for years now with President Obama, and he has been advocating for Democratic nominee Joe Biden. So two great guests today. But first, just wanted to run through my notebook, a little bit of the headlines that I'm paying attention to uh, in these final days. Number one, Florida, 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 Florida. You remember Tim Russert 20 years ago in 2000 said that was the focus for that election. It seems to be the focus once again, both Vice President Biden and President Trump in the Tampa area today, because they know that I-4 corridor vote rich is key. You also see Vice President Biden going to Broward County, making sure black voters in Florida are coming out strong. We'll talk to Attorney General Holder about that and voter suppression issues in Florida and across the South and across the country. But it's notable that Florida is this in the five days to go where they're both paying attention to. That shows you it's in play. And real quick, a new poll shows, a NBC News Marist poll, that Vice President Biden is ahead narrowly, 51% with likely voters. President Trump has 47% of likely voters, and that's within the poll's margin of error. Next big story, Pennsylvania. Uh, there's unrest there. The deadly police shooting of a black man in Philadelphia has roiled this campaign. Uh, and Vice President Biden has also seized on the news in Pennsylvania of rising number of coronavirus cases. It's exceeded now 200,000 in that state. And so you see in Pennsylvania in the final days a competing narrative from the Trump side, it's law and order, it's knocking Vice President Biden. But Vice President Biden, he's he's being critical of any rioting and, and looting, and he's really swinging that spotlight in Pennsylvania on the pandemic. My sources tell me he's speaking to suburban voters as well as urban voters with that kind of message. Immigration, can't forget about that. V- Vice President Biden knows it's key to get the Latino vote at, and he knows that Beyond the Latino vote, you have suburban people paying attention to this issue as well. They think about children being separated from their families. And now Biden has announced a task force. That's about making sure immigration's in the headlines in the final days. And then real quick, vice presidential candidates, you have Senator Harris. She's reaching out to historically black universities today. Vice President Pence, he's in Iowa, making sure evangelical voters come out. And he's speaking to conservative voters out in Nevada. But right now, I want to be bring in Eric Holder, the former attorney general, the 82nd attorney general. He is now chairman of the Democratic Redistricting Committee. Welcome to the program, Attorney General Holder. Well, thanks for having me. Look forward to the conversation. So you're tracking voter suppression and redistricting efforts across the country, but let's start with voter suppression. What are you paying attention to five days to go? 
you know, the concerns I have about the long lines, um, which I think reflect, um, I think, overwhelming enthusiasm by the American people. But I also note that studies have shown if you're an African-American, you're seven times more likely to have to wait in line uh, over one hour than your white uh, counterpart. And so I'm, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about the measures that are being taken by the Republican Party uh, to keep people away from the polls. And now they're going so far as to say that they don't want to count all the votes that have been cast. There have been lawsuits uh, or moves in, in Texas by Republicans to somehow take those votes that have already been cast by people who drove up in their cars uh, and not count those votes. Uh, it really strikes me. You know, This is something that is, I think, a ma major differentiator between the parties. Democrats want as many people to vote as it's possible, want all the votes to be counted. Republicans want to restrict the number of people who can vote and then apparently don't want to count um, all, all the votes. Uh, that is inconsistent with who we say we are uh, as an American democracy. We remember 10 years ago covering this at the Post, the Republicans sweeping across not only congressional races, but state houses. Are Democrats going to do better this time around in winning state seats and state legislative seats? It's a good question. And I, I think, yeah, Democrats are going to do a lot better. I think, quite frankly, uh, Democrats didn't focus on those state legislative races to the extent that we should have in 2010. As a result, the 2011 redistricting went uh, well went well for the, for the Republicans and led to the gerrymandering that we have seen, and that has affected our politics over the course of this last decade. Uh, I think Democrats are focusing now on state level races. It's certainly something that I've been doing going around the country, telling people, look, I get it. This is an existential presidential election, but you've got to focus on these down ballot races, that these state legislative races will probably have a greater impact on your life on a day-to-day -day basis, because these are the places where decisions are made on a women's productive, reproductive rights. Uh, criminal justice reform will undoubtedly come um, from the states. A lot of health care decisions will come um, from the states. Right. There's a whole variety of things that come from, uh, from the states as opposed to the federal government. But can you be a little bit more specific, Attorney General Holder? Which states do you believe Democrats will do the best in on the state level? Oh, I think we're going to do, you know, in a whole bunch of states because of the work that we've done where we have independent commissions now drawing the lines. And so we'll do well in, in Michigan, North Carolina. I expect we'll do well um, in, in Texas, you know, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania. You know, th there have been structural changes that we have put in place to make the vote uh, more fair this time. So I, I think that, you know, to the extent that we had concerns in um, 2010, those will not be replicated in, uh, in 2020. When you look at a state like Florida, where the candidates are going today, uh, my sources there t tell me on the Democratic side, they are concerned that white voters are casting ballots at a higher rate than black voters. What explains that? And what does that mean for this campaign? Well, first, I'm not sure that that's true, um, but because uh, I, I see pretty extensive amounts of support and enthusiasm um, by African-American voters. I think not only for the candidacy of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but also as a reaction to the efforts to suppress the vote in the African-American community. And so uh, I don't know, you know, I've, I've not seen th those kinds of reports. Uh, I'm actually pretty confident that we're going to see a very robust um, turnout in the African-American communities, not only in Florida, but around, uh, around the country. Do you believe the Biden campaign is fully prepared for the post-election fight in the courts? 
Yeah, I think we are. I mean, you know, whether I hope it doesn't come down to a fight post-election in the courts. I think we can avoid that by simply just counting all, all the votes. I think there'll be a winner, and I expect it'll be a pretty decisive winner. But to the extent that it comes down to a court battle, we have lawyers um, at he campaign headquarters. We have lawyers all around the country. Uh, I'm working with groups who are interested uh, in these issues to kind of coordinate to the extent that we can. So we have our, our legal our legal um, bases um, all covered. What about the DOJ? You know it as well as anyone. You were Attorney General of the United States. When you look at Attorney General Barr, how do you believe he is positioned for this election? Does anything concern you? Yeah, it gives me a great deal of concern. The Justice Department uh, has typically, under Republican as well as Democratic attorneys general, um, been a player for fairness and has posted monitors around the country in those places where you expected to see uh, um, problems. I don't expect that from the Justice Department this time. Uh, if the Justice Department were neutral, you know, that would be a, a bit of a, a disappointment, not, you know, focusing on fairness. I actually think that um, this attorney general has weaponized the Justice Department uh, in service to the president that uh, appointed him. And that gives me a, a great deal of concern. What do you mean by weaponized? How has he weaponized it? Well, I mean, coming out for uh, doing things that are, are consistent with the president's best political interests, whether it's interfering um, in, in cases uh, that put um, supporters of the president um, at risk, you know, with regard to, to Manafort, Stone, place people like that, um, with regard to the way in which they have taken positions in election cases. Uh, there's a whole variety of ways in which this attorney general um, has put the Justice Department on the side of the president as opposed to the uh, the people. Your friend and longtime ally, President Obama, was in Florida earlier this week. I'm sure you saw that speech. Where do you believe he should go in the final few days of this campaign? Well, first of all, I think he's getting a few things off of his chest. <laughs> so that was pretty interesting to watch. Um, I, I think that he's going to go to the places where he needs to be. Certainly Florida. I, I would think the, you know, the industrial Midwest is a place that will require some attention towards the end of the uh, of the election process. You know, I, I think Democrats are still suffering PTSD from what happened in 2016 and don't want to repeat what is at least perceived to be a mistake by not devoting attention to, you know, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, uh, and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is obviously a, a critical state, but I don't think we should um, forget Michigan and, uh, and Wisconsin as well. What's your assessment, Attorney General, of the Postal Service at this moment and its ability to monitor, to manage all of the ballots coming through? The Postal Service has been crippled. And as I said in a tweet, I think yesterday um, or day before, people need to not use the um, Postal Service, not rely on the Postal Service to get their mail-in ballots to the um, balloting places on time. Uh, there's been a deliberate attempt by the Trump administration, by the Postmaster General, to decrease the ability of the Postal Service to handle um, handle th these this, this record number uh, of mail-in ballots. And all the studies show that, you know, first-class mail deliveries are down well below 90%, which I think is kind of an acceptable rate. Um, and they've been successful in what it is that they have tried to do. I hope they'll be held accountable what they have uh, successfully done in the next administration. But now is not a time to rely on, uh, I think, the mails to try to get your ballots in uh, on time. On the voter suppression question, there's the physical activity at polling places and intimidation. But what about 
people who are concerned their mail-in vote might not count because they made a mistake on the envelope, they didn't fold something correctly. How could that actually affect the final tally? Yeah, I mean, I don't know the you know extent to which this will be a problem, but it is something that gives me um, concern. It's why you know my organization, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, we filed lawsuits in a variety of places to try to make sure that you know ballots don't get tossed for you know for crazy reasons. You know, signature matches. You know, I mean, how many people can say that you know your signature has remained constant, absolutely constant, over the course of of your life? Uh, to make sure that people are doing the right thing. You know, we saw in Pennsylvania the problem with naked ballots, not putting your ballot into, um, you know, that security envelope. There's a whole variety of things that people unfamiliar with um, the mail-in ballot process uh, perhaps have not done. And that gives me um, some concern that ballots that are legitimately filled out for technical reasons um, might, not be, uh, might not be counted. So I'm, I'm worried about that. I'm very worried about that. You've seen the rise of militia groups nationwide, the threats on different Democratic governors. Is the Department of Justice under President Trump doing enough to address that threat? Well, you know, it depends on what part of the Justice Department you're looking at. I mean, if you look at the FBI, I think Director Ray has rightfully called out the problem uh, with these white supremacist groups, these militia groups, and expressed the fact that those are uh, of primary concern. Uh, I've not seen the same kind of uh, rhetoric coming out of the attorney general, the deputy attorney general. They have been, I think, notably and unfortunately silent when it comes to that. Uh, I have great faith you know, in the men and women of the Justice Department, the career folks, great faith in the, the people at the, uh, at, at the FBI. So I think these problems will be, will be handled. Um, but I think a tone of unacceptance has to be expressed by the leaders of this nation. I would expect to hear the president come out against uh, what these militia groups have done uh, in, in Michigan. I'd expect to hear that also from um, you know, the attorney general. And they have not uh, given voice to the concerns I think they ought to have to the extent that they, they should. If Vice President Biden wins the White House, should he retain Chris Wray as FBI director? Yeah, I mean, that I don't see any reason why uh, Director Ray should not finish out his 10-year term. The, the, those 10-year terms are there uh, so that you have stability at the, at the uh, FBI, so that you don't have um, what we had with, uh, you know, with the Director Hoover. Um, so I, I don't see any reason why anybody would have lost faith in the job that, that he's done. He's had a tough job to try to navigate that which has been thrown at him um, by the president, the criticism that has come his way. Um, but I think he, I supported, you know, his nomination, and I don't see any basis um, now to not hold him, not hold him on. Do you support the effort to prosecute President Trump potentially if he loses the election out of office? I mean, that's certainly something I think that has to be considered. I think a look has to be taken at the uh, the cases that might be made against him, uh, not the least of which is that case that involved Michael Cohen, where the president was, you know, individual number one. That's a, a threshold determination that has to be made. But I, I think we have to, you know, and accountability is something that I think has to be a guide. But we also have to understand what is the impact? What would the impact be of um, the prosecution of a former president, a nation that wants to heal, a new administration that wants to um, you know, enact the programs that it, it ran on, would that be too large a distraction? So that there's going to be a, a tension, a pull between accountability and the desire um, to move on. Um, Where I do you really, lean in that tension? You know, I, I actually think that given the breadth of corruption that we have seen in the, uh, the, the Trump administration, that uh, I, I 
tend to lean towards um, accountability, but not only with regard to the president, but those who served within the administration and abused, um, abused their offices. If Vice President Biden wins, are you open to returning to a cabinet position? <laughs> well, that's something I haven't really considered. Uh, I'll try to serve in, in any way that I can, but I suspect that uh, you know the vice president uh, uh, and the new vice president Kamala Harris uh, ha- have their eyes on um, maybe some new folks to serve in the to serve in the cabinet. And a final thing here, Attorney General Holder, you were probably watching the final debate, and uh, in recent days, Vice President Biden has talked about his his regrets on immigration during the Obama years. Do you share his regrets about not being able to enact comprehensive immigration reform? Yeah, I'm not sure I'd I'd call it regrets. Uh, Regrets, I think, in the results. But I mean, people have to remember that a a bipartisan bill came out from the United States Senate. Um, And the people who were behind that bill, I think, deserve, you know, a a great deal of credit. You know, took some political courage. That bill never got a vote in the United States House of Representatives. John Boehner uh, never put that ma- ba- that measure before the House because I think they knew that it would have uh, passed. The Freedom Caucus prevented uh, that from that thing from being presented. So yeah, I regret the fact that uh, comprehensive immigration reform w- was not acted upon. It could have been um, acted upon, but Republican failures in the House uh, prevented it from occurring. So to the extent that I have any regrets, it's that there wasn't the the leadership, the needed, the needed leadership in the uh, in the House of Representatives. One other thing, Attorney General Holder, if you're not ready to jump back into the cabinet life, who do you think Vice President Biden, if he wins, should pick as the next Attorney General? Oh, I think he's got a lot of good choices. I, I think that you ought to look for somebody uh, who has some degree of familiarity with the department. I don't think this is a time for people um, learning on the job and somebody who will be able to meet the moment. Um, somebody who will be able to deal with the um, with the, the, the civil unrest that has engulfed our nation, the need for criminal justice reform, the need for uh, an enhanced Justice Department effort at protecting um, the right to vote. So somebody, as I said, who's got um, that experience and somebody who's got the ability to uh, to meet the moment and who's going to be, you know, politically savvy. There are going to be a lot of things thrown at the next attorney general, um, fair and unfair, that are going to re- require some degree of um, political acumen. No name mentioned, though. We'll leave it there. Attorney General Eric Holder, appreciate your time and hope you come back sometime soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And we'll now turn to former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, who is a longtime supporter of President Trump over the past four years. And he served as the 50th Speaker of the House of Representatives. Speaker Gingrich, welcome back to Washington Post Live. It's good to be with you. Remember, I remember doing this a few years. It's good to have you back. And uh, a few years ago, we weren't talking about Georgia as a battleground, uh, the state you represented in Congress for years. Now it is a battleground. Uh, Are you worried about President Trump's chances in in that state? Well, I'm not worried about him. I think he'll carry the state. But it's certainly more of a fight than it would have been a few years ago. Uh, And I think you have to give Stacey Abrams and others some credit for how much they've gone out and they've organized and they have uh, gotten people registered, uh, which is what America should be all about. I think in the end, President Trump will carry Georgia, uh, and I suspect in the end, we'll have both U.S. Senate seats, but it's certainly more of a fight than it would have been, say, 12 years ago. How have those suburbs around Atlanta changed over the past 20 years? 
Well, I think they're more diverse ethnically. I think they're probably a little bit more moderate on social policy than they would have been. Uh, and I think that the uh, Democrats have been very effective in organizing uh, in suburban areas, not just in Georgia, but around the country. It's one of their great strengths. On the other hand, uh, the Republicans are enormously well organized when you get beyond into the exurbs and the small towns and the rural counties. Uh, and the margins that are going to roll up in those areas is pretty enormous. And you can't quite tell how the votes will work. Uh, Stacey Abrams lost the governorship in part because she lost a significant number of African-American males in rural Georgia who found her to be too much of a big city person, uh, too anti-gun, uh, and too dismissive of agriculture. So actually the, the margin, a large part of the margin by which the Republican governor was elected came from African-American males who just repudiated the Democratic nominee. What is the Trump campaign's closing message here on the economy? Because on one level, Speaker Gingrich, you have more than 20 million Americans who are still on some form of unemployment benefits. You have people who have fallen into poverty, but you also see the new GDP numbers uh, growth at 7.4% in recent months. Uh, there's a lot of pain out there, but the business side of the economy is trying to tout some recovery. Is it too too much too late for President Trump? Well, Gallup did a survey about three weeks ago, and 56% of the country said despite everything, they were better off than four years ago under Obama and Biden. And at that point, I sort of thought that was a hint of where the election was going to end up. Uh, the numbers for the president today, I mean, he has to be ecstatic. 33% increase in the GDP in one quarter. Uh, there's zero possibility that uh, Vice President Biden could come anywhere close to matching that kind of aggressive growth. So the president's message is simple. Uh, do you want an economic recovery with Trump back to a world with the lowest black unemployment, the lowest Latino unemployment in history? Or do you want a long, slow, painful, somewhere between a non-recovery and a depression with Biden. And I think that that's a very powerful message. And I hope the president will spend about the first third of every single speech from now to election day, just driving home that simple message. If you like unemployment and you like poverty, Joe Biden is your candidate. I've been talking to voters in Pennsylvania in recent days, and it's clear that some of those suburban Republicans, they do agree with what you just said. They believe President Trump would be better on the economy for them personally, for their communities. At the same time, some of those voters have expressed disappointment with how President Trump has handled the pandemic. How much of a political burden is the federal response to this crisis? Well, I think it's much more of a burden because of the news media. Uh, the fact is, after the news media spent months saying, oh, look how much better the Europeans are doing. The French just announced a complete shutdown. The Germans have announced a complete shutdown. The Italians in the process of announcing a complete shutdown. And it's going to turn out that President Trump saved a lot more lives and ran a much more effective program than did the Europeans. And frankly, the largest losses of lives were in states run by Democrats who terribly abused the process and put senior citizens in nursing homes they should not have been in and probably in the process killed thousands of senior citizens. So I think Trump can make a pretty good case that he, has been, he reacted aggressively. He reacted before anybody else said he could on China. Uh, the fact is that Biden did say that Trump was xenophobic. 
Uh, Pelosi went to Chinatown to make sure people understood you shouldn't be worried about China. And the president said, to heck with that, and he cut off all the flights and probably saved thousands of lives as a result of doing it. Finally, Trump's entrepreneurial style, his aggressive outreach to business, they have the largest, fastest vaccine development in history. And I think it's going to prove by the end of the year to have had breakthroughs that are historic and that would have, under a traditional bureaucratic Biden-style government, would have taken four or five years. With entrepreneurship, it'll take about nine months. You mentioned Speaker Pelosi. Uh, the negotiations over a stimulus are at a standstill between her and President Trump and Secretary Mnuchin, really. What's the political cost of that for this White House? I think almost nothing. I think the, the, the people she wants to pay off are the heavily unionized big states that are in desperate trouble. New York, New Jersey, Illinois, California. The rest of the country has no interest in sending their money to pay off these terribly badly managed states. Uh, and the fact is when you get 33% increase in your gross domestic product in one quarter, you begin to realize the, you know, it's a very simple future. Donald Trump stands for a future in which small business and real private sector jobs are the heart of it. Biden stands for a future in which paying off public employee unions is at the heart of it. It's a very, very different vision of which America we're going to be. And my hunch is uh, that the small business Trump model beats the uh, Joe Biden bureaucratic unionized model by a, a pretty big margin. You've expressed confidence just now, Speaker Gingrich, about the president's response to the pandemic, but poll after poll shows it has been a problem for him politically. Do you just not believe the polls on that? Well, look, I, I think anytime you have, this is the largest disruption of American life since World War II. Anytime you are the president with that scale disruption, you've got a problem. And I think that and sometimes he's made it a little harder. Sometimes he's done things that were brilliant, but it's a problem. It's a huge challenge. On the other hand, the American people, I think, have a more balanced view of all the different characteristics. And they think about how radical a San Francisco uh, candidate like Kamala, Kamala Harris is. And they think about how weak Joe Biden seems to be hiding in the basement. Uh, and they look at the difference in the two parties. And the truth is, despite everything the news media has done, I think 92% negative coverage was the last report. Uh, Trump is still very competitive. My guess is he will win. I think he'll probably win about 326 electoral votes. And I think the left will be in total shock. You, you blame the news media, but you also acknowledge he's made some mistakes. You, you said he's also been brilliant, but you said he's made some mistakes. It can't all be news media coverage, can it, Speaker Gingrich? At some level, there has to be some responsibility on the president's own conduct. Of course. The, Robert, you don't want to go down this road. Uh, we'll just, the, the fact is, the American news media has been in the tank to try to destroy Donald Trump for four straight years. They still are today. Their unwillingness to cover Biden corruption, their eagerness to believe anybody who would smear Trump, this latest fiasco of anonymous showing up. Uh, just go back and look. As long as it was anti-Trump, the news media was eager to run around. Had the Washington Post in 1972 said to Woodward and Bernstein, oh, don't look into Nixon. What the heck? Let's just ignore it. History would be radically different. And I'm just suggesting to you, Trump's made mistakes, but for Pete's sake, any president who faced a pandemic on this scale 
would have made mistakes. And most of those mistakes were in concert with his public health experts. I did a podcast, which is a Gingrich 360, with Dr. Fauci in early February, and he reassured me that this was not a pandemic, that this was in fact something like SARS. So let's be clear. Uh, Trump worked with people who often themselves made mistakes. When you deal with a change of this scale, you're going to make mistakes. And so has the head of Great Britain, the head of France, the head of Spain, the head of Italy. Go down the list. Everybody's made mistakes except the Chinese. And the Chinese don't make mistakes because they kill you if you say that, uh, because, or they simply censor you. Uh, and the result is that they have a totally different record because nobody has a clue what's going on. You've won House of Majorities. Which, sta are, which states are you watching in the final days here, the final five days? Oh, I, well, first of all, I try to watch about 12 states. But I would say that uh, the, the really interesting ones, first of all, are Pennsylvania. And I don't know what the riots in Pennsylvania are going to do in Philadelphia. My hunch is that the mistake on fracking and energy probably seal the deal and the Trump will once again carry Pennsylvania. Obviously, you look at Michigan. You look at Wisconsin, where, by the way, the most recent survey said that Trump was 17 points behind. I offered yesterday to put up $1,000 to anybody's favorite charity if the person who authored that poll would be willing to match it. And as long as it, if, it's under, if it's under seven points, I get the money. If it's over seven, I'll pay the 1000 him. There's no way that that poll is anywhere close to accurate. But I'm watching Wisconsin. I'm also watching as outliers, uh, Nevada, Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota is moving in very interesting ways. New Mexico, because of Biden's mistake on fracking and, and, and oil and gas. Remember, southern New Mexico is very heavily energy dependent. Uh, and Trump is doing much better with Latinos than he did four years ago. He's, gonna, he's also doing dramatically better with African-Americans. Almost every survey now shows him doing better and better with African-Americans. And if I were a Democrat, that would, that would have me terrified. Because if we start breaking through, and we don't have to get more than 20, 30, 40%. At that point, it's impossible to imagine how the Democrats ever- You believe he's breaking through even with his law and order message as there's a racial reckoning in this country about police violence? I, I believe if you are the average African-American living in a neighborhood where people get shot on the weekend, you actually think law and order is kind of a good message. 80% of African-Americans want more police, not fewer police. And it is only people who are really well off who can live in nice little sanctuaries who think it's interesting to disband the police. And all those small businesses that just got burned out in Philadelphia, none of them think that Biden's approach is, that makes any sense because they just watch their life being burned out by people who are routinely breaking the law. Speaker Gingrich, appreciate your time this afternoon. And we're now going to be joined by a colleague of mine at the Washington Post, Chelsea Janes. Uh, she covers Senator Kamala Harris, Joe Biden's running mate. Chelsea, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So you've been on the Harris beat for quite some time, five days to go. What do you make about, one, where she's going and what she's saying? You know, I, I think it's clear that the Biden campaign sees in her someone that can reach groups that Joe Biden might not reach in the same way. We've seen her go to Arizona yesterday. She was in Nevada on Tuesday. She'll be in Texas tomorrow. She's really met with a lot of, you know, African-American community leaders, Latino community leaders. And this has been true since she was added to the ticket. So, you know, her, her stump speech isn't 
particularly interesting or it doesn't deviate from what we're hearing from from most Democrats stumping for Biden. But I think who she's speaking to and sort of the settings um, really reflects the way the campaign views her as someone who has a lot of credibility um, with the black community, with Latinos, um, since her parents are immigrants. And, and I think that's sort of been her target for the last few months. Has the Biden campaign <laughs> and Harris campaign ever found it difficult to explain her, her her prosecutorial record to traditional Democratic voters? You know, I think it's something that comes up. Um, I've heard that she's had private calls with, you know, a lot of Black activists um, and is in contact with, for example, Ben Crump, the attorney that represents a lot of the families who've been victimized by police violence. Um, and, you know, I think those are constant conversations. I think she took care of a lot of those concerns that we really saw in the primary about her not doing enough when she was Attorney General of California or District Attorney of San Francisco. Um, she met with a lot of activists, did a lot of outreach, um, you know, whether that was geared toward being on the ticket or not, who knows, but it certainly seems like a lot of people believe that she is uh, an open ear at this point. And that wasn't necessarily the case a year ago. And I think it's the product of a, you know, a lot of work. And I think also, frankly, um, you know, her against the alternative right now for a lot of those Democratic voters, um, it's, it's not too much of a close call. And, and they're willing to overlook some things, I think, as they are with Biden. You mentioned her primary presidential campaign. You covered that campaign closely. As you watch her now as the vice presidential nominee, do you sense any political discomfort in terms of being at the side of a more moderate Democrat? Uh, has this been a, an easy fit for her? I actually think it's been a really natural fit for her. One of the things that I think tripped her up occasionally on the campaign trail was when she would kind of get into the policy nitty gritty and, and try to separate herself from her fellow candidates. And that's not to say she doesn't know what she's talking about with policy, but I think what often happened is, is it was hard to differentiate herself. And, and, you know, every one of those things that she would talk about, you know, could be the difference between her and Elizabeth Warren in someone's mind, her and, you know, whoever else. And it just felt like she kind of got locked up and, and kind of in the weeds often. And, now she she basically just has to say, you know, here's what Vice President Biden stands for, and I'm with him. And I think it's it's enabled her to really take that conversation to a bigger picture conversation, um, and you know about the future of America and and all the things that Joe Biden likes to make it about, and put her in a more comfortable zone where she can, you know, kind of just say, look, we're we're not those guys. You know, here's what we've stood for all along, and and here's how that's different. And I think that's a really good fit for her because she's she's more practical than you know, hammering the same message like an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders. She's she's going to kind of adjust to her time. And, and I think that's what she's able to do right now is adjust to a time when really all she has to do is be, you know, able to prosecute the case against Donald Trump, frankly. I've seen her on some of these Zoom calls and virtual calls. She was on 60 Minutes. But what's her availability day to day with the press? Like Biden, it's fairly limited. Um, you know, they've got a small pool of people that they're allowing to to follow her day to day. And usually when she lands, she'll take a question or two. Um, she's been very available for, for local interviews at every stop. You know, she'll do four or five. Um, she's been very present on, you know, radio stations and websites that um, traditionally cater to, to Black Americans. She's been really available to reporters from those outlets. So 
you know, I, I think she's been fairly available, but it's certainly not a daily question and answer session, which is something that Biden has avoided too. And, and for that reason, I think there are a lot of, you know, tougher questions that she hasn't had to confront as often as she might if she were talking to the press more regularly. And inside her campaign, her inner circle, what's the reaction been to criticism in recent weeks about how she's handled herself as vice presidential, uh, as the vice presidential nominee? Uh, Peggy Noonan's column in the Wall Street Journal got a lot of attention from Democrats uh, for the way she was portrayed in that column. How does the Harris inner circle see that column and the criticism of her generally? Dating back to when she launched her presidential early last year, their strategy of people around her has largely been, we're not going to touch this. We're not going to have her address it. We're not going to address it. You know, we don't want to amplify anything that we feel is a racist or sexist criticism of Kamala Harris. And for that reason, it, it's not something she talks about in any specific terms. She often, you know, says, I'm used to this. I've, I've been the first Black woman running for many positions, and, and this comes with the territory. I think what we've seen since she's been the presidential nominee is sort of mo more overtly racist and sexist arguments made against her by Republicans. And I, I think that's riled up a lot of people um, in her inner circle and even, you know, just kind of allies and supporters. Um, but she still hasn't changed her tact. She's sort of, you know, doesn't really address it at all. And, and that's what they've decided is sort of the, the safest way to handle that. And I, I think you know, she could kind of be swatting those things away all day if, if she wanted to be. But, um, you know, I also think that they believe that those criticisms don't hold a lot of water with the people that they're trying to, you know, attract and turn out to the polls. So I think that's part of it as well. Chelsea, I appreciate you coming by to share your reporting and give us some insight into Senator Harris and her campaign. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining us uh, for another edition of Election Daily. These are kind of fun. Enjoy it. It's it's good to really dig in uh, with some of these newsmakers and reporters in the final days of this historic campaign. I've never seen anything like it in my time as a reporter. Uh, everything's on the line uh, for both of these parties, both of these nominees. So I hope you come back tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern time and all next week. On Friday, I'll talk to economists at the White House and Trump trade advisor Pete Navarro and the Biden campaign's national co-chair, Representative Lisa Bunt, Blunt Rochester. That'll be tomorrow. And later today, I'll talk, at, that'll be at um, 225 today. I'll speak to Larry Kudlow, the White House's top economic advisor, about the latest GDP numbers, the U.S. economy. That's 225 today, this afternoon, and so in under an hour. Larry Kudlow will be here with me uh, to talk about the economy, big issue ahead of this campaign. I'm Bob Costa. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.